electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Right now in Fast, stuck in reverse. Ford CEO calling his company dysfunctional. The CFO adding Ford's at a $7 billion disadvantage to its rivals. How did the auto giant dig itself into such a hole? Plus, tarnished Titan Goldman scrapping its credit card plans and pulling back on its consumer biz, a push that cost the firm billions. Could it end up costing David Solomon, the CEO, his job? And later, Roku Rebound, the one struggling streamer surging after hours on a revenue beat and a strong outlook, will go inside the numbers. And from the D-line to the bottom line, Eagles defensive end, Indomitian Sue will join us. He may have lost the Super Bowl, but he's winning off the field. We'll talk to him about his relationship to Warren Buffett and his financial literacy push. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Steve Grasso, Jeff Mills, and Guy Adami. And we start off with a stunning admission from a major auto exec. Ford CEO Jim Farley opening up about why the company has fallen behind its competitors and what it needs to do to improve its position. Shares of Ford were down slightly today and have lagged far behind the likes of Tesla and GM this month. So what exactly is behind the shortfall? Let's get to Phil LeBeau, who's got all the headlines there. Phil. Melissa, Jim Farley was talking at the Wolf Research Conference today. It was a fireside chat with him and the CFO, John Lawler, uh, talking with uh, the analysts there saying, here's where the company is right now. Basically, the same message that we've heard over the last several days where they say, look, we are at about a 7 or $8 billion cost disadvantage relative to our competitors. We think that at a minimum, we can address almost immediately things like warranty costs as well as the inefficiencies when it comes to engineering. It's not going to happen overnight, but there is uh, the plan from Jim Farley. And then there's the question about whether or not he can continue the pivot that Ford has begun when it comes to electric vehicles. Lots of news on that front today. This afternoon, we heard from Ford regarding the production halt of the F-150 Lightning. Remember yesterday, the company confirmed that they stopped production last week because they found a discrepancy in in one of the battery cells uh, for a vehicle pre-delivery. So they halted production. That's going to be halted through next week. Because of this battery issue, the good news, if you're a Ford investor, is that you're hopeful that what they say here uh, comes to fruition. They have found the root cause. It may have been found, according to the company. And if they have found it and they can address it, then they'll start up production potentially by the end of next week, if not the following week. Remember, EVs are the future for Ford. Yes, I know that the money comes right now from the internal combustion engine business. But Jim Farley has basically said, we've got to be bigger and better and profitable in EVs. Yes, they're number two. The target is for 600,000 production by the end of this year. Today, Jim Farley said that they will move towards non-negotiable EV pricing next year. He believes that's going to be a game changer. It'll be much easier for you to go online and say, I want a Mustang Mach-E. What's the price? Boom. I'll order it. No haggling with the dealer. So when you look at Ford, keep in mind that the target they have established right now is for 8% EV margins by 2026, which is also, Melissa, when they say that they will have annual sales at a pace of 2 million vehicles by the end of 2026. they got a long ways to go between now and then. Phil, can they circumvent the dealer in this case? 
Uh, they believe that they can change the cost equation. They believe they can change the cost equation in terms of working with their dealers. They're not going to circumvent them, but they mm-hmm. are going to have to work with those dealers. They've made a lot of progress in that area, but they still have a long ways to go. Yep. Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. So how should we look at the Ford story? Are we on the cusp of a turnaround or is it way too early to say at this point, Tim? Well, Jim Farley has not been, uh, let's put it this way, he has been out there talking about this for a long time. And and what's very clear is in the auto industry, some of these changes take a while to implement. This is not going to happen overnight. There are cost uh, deficiencies, differences between Ford and GM. Why why Ford's credit uh, entity was that much more costly and and less cash flow generative, they didn't pay a a dividend this earnings period, is of some question. So, um, you know, what you saw this week, they sacked 3,600 jobs in Europe. They are going to streamline operations there. The model right now is really one more like North America or even South America, where they have fixed cost base and they're trying to leverage that. But this is nothing new. Um, you can make an argument that Ford has traded at a discount to GM even over the last couple of years because of this, uh, even though Ford really over the last couple of years has outperformed GM substantially because that whole EV story is something that's been very exciting. I feel like we want to we want to be happy for the for GM and Ford. I feel like we want to be constructive for GM and Ford on a constant basis. They're both trailing Tesla. And I think where you were going with that dealer comment was it's more like Tesla now to circumvent the actual dealership and do everything online and have a no haggle price. Is that where you're going? Or I was just wondering if, if, if legally or you know, contractually they can actually do that versus have the dealership be the, be the seller. I feel like GM and Ford, right, rightfully so, we see who holds the market share. They are really trying to struggle here. Ford is not winning, and I think it's way too early to invest in a turnaround. I mean, in the land of investors, Jeff Mills, you know, if you're an investor looking at an auto company, you're looking at an auto company who may, you know, uh, be good on EVs, you know, the choice is going to be Tesla, Ford, or GM, effectively. So where would you go? Because GM's quarter and Tesla's quarter made Ford's quarter look terrible. Yeah, boy, it's a tough one. I mean, on Tesla, you know, there, there's no reason the stock can't go higher from here. So let's start there. I just worry about that stock in another risk-off environment, which I think is likely over the next couple of quarters. Obviously, a very high beta stock. It jumps all over the place. But it's traded in that 200 to $300 range for a while. Obviously, it popped to 400 But the next challenge you know, on the way to the top of that two to $300 range is 225 It's that falling 200-day moving average. But there are a ton of cross currents right now. I mean, they're lowering prices, uh, decent demand here, uh, potential issues in China. We're not really sure. What if the economy contracts? So there's just a lot going on. So for me, I rely on the charts for a stock like that. It's still in a downtrend. When that changes, I'll sort of revisit it. Uh, you know, I think it's hard to generally bet against Elon Musk over the long term. And I've been wrong about this stock a lot. But that's my general view there. And, you know, on Ford, I think we're all saying it in different ways, but you're going to have to be patient. 
I'm just not sure that the market's going to be patient if we see macro headwinds relative to overall auto demand, just given the profitability profile and the relationship to a Ford versus a GM who you know, is doing a little bit better in that regard. With Ford, though, and this is the last thing I'll say, if you look at the stock, I do think that it's put in a bottom at that 1060 level. Obviously, that's well below where we are now. But in terms of defining your risk in those different trades, I think that's probably it for Ford. Guy, what's your take on Ford? Well, $7 billion, right? So it's a company that will do $160 billion in sales for a year. $7 billion is significant in so much it should fall right to the bottom line, number one. And then the question is, well, how did they just figure this out? It's an old company, as we all know, and I think they just got lazy doing certain things. And now two and a half years or so into his tenure, maybe Jim Farley has figured it out. I think Mark Fields had his arms around it to a certain extent. And then one has to wonder what happened during the Hackett years. Um, in terms of the stock, $13 today, guess what? It was $13 in 1997 as well. Yeah, it's gone up and down since then. But you think about it, 25 years or so of nowhere is pretty interesting in an environment where, auto, where automakers really probably had the best decades of their lives. In terms of Ford now and Tesla, I mean, it's good for Steve, by the way, in terms of the T in, what, in his anagram or monogram or whatever you call that thing, <laughs> anagram. I'll say this, you know, you wonder at 65% of, yeah, of EV sales, I know, of EV sales in the United States, is that just going to continue to dwindle? My sense is the others will start to catch up. So you can look at it and say this will be, this last quarter will be the worst thing you've heard from Ford in a long time. And I'm not saying there's only blue sky ahead, but I think this stock you can probably own here. All right. Our next guest is a Ford bear. He downgraded the stock to a sell earlier this month on the back of earnings. Emanuel Rosner is the lead auto analyst at Deutsche Bank. Emanuel, great to have you with us. Um, since the earnings, which I characterize as terrible, just you know, briefly, um, we've had a number of incremental bits of news from Ford. I'm wondering how, if at all, this changes your perspective on the company. Yeah. Hi, Melissa. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Absolutely not. Uh, you know, we downgraded Ford to a sell rating a couple of weeks ago after the earnings. What's extremely clear in our view is that this turnaround is not on track. The fact that there's a cost disadvantage on for, at Ford versus GM and certainly versus Tesla is not in dispute. Obviously, even Farley admits that. The question, are they having some traction fixing this? And it looks like it's not. They obviously had profit warning in the third quarter. They also missed their own guidance in the fourth quarter, which they had reiterated. And now they're calling for flat earnings in 2023, which would require them to have $3 billion of savings just this year with zero evidence that it's actually going in the right direction. They also need to invest in electric vehicles at the same time. So any fixed cost savings they can get on combustion engine, they would have to reinvest on the electrification where they are behind you know, some of these rivals. So we think it's absolutely not on track. We downgraded to a sale and we have a price target of $11. In terms of some of the manufacturing efficiencies they're trying to reap, Emmanuel, they talked about um, moving to large underbelly castings in order to make the manufacturing more you know, easy and efficient. And that's kind of what Tesla has been doing for some time. How long does that take? I mean, I would imagine this takes years. These are processes that, that need to you know, change not overnight, but over the course of years, particularly when it comes to, to retrofitting factories. Yeah, absolutely. This is the crux of the issue. When you look at what Ford quantified at $7 billion cost disadvantage, it's about $3 billion in the bill of materials, $3 billion in manufacturing, and $1 billion in warranty. 
none of these buckets will be fixed, will be quick to fix or even cheap to fix. Uh, manufacturing takes a long time, as you just said. Bill of material, we'll see, the suppliers are still seeing some cost inflation from labor, from energy. They're not giving any you know, cheaper prices here. And then warranty, when you look at initial quality survey, Ford did not rank well. And it takes years to essentially be able to improve you know, quality of vehicles. So when we see Ford saying, well, we have an $8 billion opportunity, absolutely. Well, we're going to get $3 billion of that in 2023. I think that's going to be extremely difficult, especially on the back of a year like 2022, where the cost actually went up rather than down. Emmanuel, I admire your call. Um, by the way, that's been the right call to have for a long time now. Every rally has been sold in this name. But what do you make of the announcement uh, that their partnership with the Chinese uh, battery company here in the United States, that seems fraught with political backlash. What are your thoughts on that? So even before, you know, looking to the pol- political backlash, I mean, this is the right move as in Ford needs to have battery capacity in the U.S., you will benefit from government incentives. It's also the right thing in order to be cost competitive when they try to sell an electric vehicle. The issue is they're so far behind, it will take years to ramp up. So GM is already producing batteries in the U.S., in Lordstown, Ohio. Ford will be starting to ramp up their own U.S. batteries only from 2025, 2026. And then these other plants would come, you know, even after that. So we're talking about a fairly major lag, a fairly uh, major disadvantage in terms of cost. So even if all plays out well, you would actually put them in a better position three, four, five years out rather than uh, right now. And that's before even considering some of the political consideration. Emmanuel, last uh, quick question here, and and that is, you know, as Ford is trying to um, become more cost effective in their manufacturing and, and close that gap that they have in terms of disadvantage, prices theoretically should be coming down at the same time. So do they get squeezed? This is our fear for actually all traditional automakers here. There is some cyclical pressure that's likely to come. Um, Earnings for traditional automakers at all-time high because vehicle prices are at all-time high. The consumer is not getting squeezed. Affordability has gone, you know, worse. And interest rates are going up. It's not unlikely for car prices to stay this high. So we worry in general about the cyclical backdrop. We worry about Ford assuming that their prices will be flat this year, which seems like an unbelievably aggressive assumption from an all-time high, uh, all-time high starting point. And so, yeah, I think there's going to be cyclical pressure. But even on the relative basis, assuming everything stays steady and the prices do not come down, we feel like Ford is essentially a disadvantage versus GM in terms of its cost structure, but also in terms of its valuation. It is more expensive than GM on 2023 earnings, which is very hard to explain, you know, in light of all the stuff we've discussed. Emmanuel, thanks for your time. Great to see you. Emmanuel Rosner. Uh, Jeff Mills, it is rare on Wall Street for an analyst to put a stock at a sell rating. Yeah, but I think it's appropriate here. And we almost have that same that same price target. I mentioned 1060. Emmanuel said 11 bucks. And I think there might be sort of a gravitational pull toward that level just because, again, I don't know how patient investors are going to be with these cost-cutting efforts. You have other areas of the auto sector that are a little bit more profitable. I think that's key in this type of market. So my guess is it's a difficult slog here going forward. Uh, And and maybe to go back to the first question you asked me, thinking about it from a trader's perspective, so let's say over the next quarter or so, I think you don't really have any catalyst relative to afford where looking at Tesla, I think that might be a different story. And it's at least possible that you could trade to the upside of that range I mentioned with Ford. I don't know that that's the case. 
All right, coming up, we've got some after hours movers. Roku, Cisco, and Zillow all surging higher after their reports. The details from the quarters next, plus some wild energy in today's session. Crude bouncing around as oil tries to climb out of negative territory for the year. So, how should you trade the energy space? We've got the details when Fast Money returns. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now, we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. Earnings alert on Roku. Shares surging after the company reported a revenue beat and smaller than expected loss per share for the latest quarter. Q1 revenue guidance also topping estimates. That conference call is underway. Julia Borson joins us with the latest. Hey, Julia. Hey, that's right. In addition to that better than expected revenue that Roku reported, that revenue actually flat with last year rather than a decline. Company reporting smaller than expected loss. Roku guided to Q1 revenue of $700 million. That was higher than expectations, though it is worth pointing out that first quarter earnings guidance did fall short of what um, analysts were looking for. CEO Anthony Wood writing in his letter to shareholders, quote, although macro uncertainty seems likely to persist in 2023, our unmatched scale and engagement, along with our competitive advantages, give us conviction in our ability to navigate and execute in challenging times. The company also noting both in that letter and also in his call going on right now that despite tightening ad budgets in Q4, ad spending on the Roku platform outperformed the overall ad market. Wood saying that the company plans to continue to improve its operating expense profile and that they are committed to a path that delivers positive adjusted EBITDA for full 2024. They also mentioned that there was 85% growth in the Roku channel in the past year. And also they're seeing a lot of growth in those free ad-supported channels, what they call fast channels in the biz in general. Melissa? Julia, thanks. Julia Borston. Um, Steve Gerst. This this is about expectations. And I believe in October they guided to a 8% decline in in revenue. So the the bar was set up pretty low for them. Mm -hmm. You look at the chart, it's a disaster. Anything better than a disaster was going to have the stock pop. You have an upgrade cycle in TVs, more Roku's. I, I think we're headed towards more positivity. Well, I think their best days are behind them. I mean, I, I see the competition from big tech and, and, you know, the ad scatter market. We know the cyclicality and that Steve's right on the comps um, are easy to beat. And they'd already given you a guide. It was easy to beat that. Um, this is not a stock I get excited about. A 9% short interest doesn't it helps in terms of the, the pop yeah. in the stock after hours guy. No, I mean, it does not. Uh, yeah, it shouldn't. It's not representative of this move without question. We've seen much larger short interests. But let's put this in perspective to both Steve and Tim's point. This stock at its trough, I think it was $38 and change, 
Forget about the lows we saw in March of 2020. I mean, this stock traded levels we hadn't seen since sort of the summer of 2018. So you talk about a complete overshot, a stock that would, by the way, a year earlier was trading $500. So for perspective, so where we are now effectively gets us to the lows that we saw in the early spring of 2020. Theoretically, this is where we should sort of uh, flame out, I would think, because to Tim's point, the best days for Roku, I, I think, are clearly behind them. And it's still at these prices, even with the precipitous sell-off we've seen over the last couple of years, it's still an expensive stock. All right, let's get to Cisco now. It's also out with results. Shares also higher after posting a beat on the top and the bottom lines. Guidance for the current quarter coming in above expectations. Frank Holland joins us with more from the earnings call. Frank. Hey, Melissa, just listen to the call. Chuck Robbins said supply chain issues were continuing to ease for the company. Strong quarter overall. Beats in both segments and a beat uh, uh, over margin estimates as well. A sign of that improving supply chain. Dividend also raised by a penny and a big raise on full year EPS guidance. On the call, Robbins discussed what gave Cisco the confidence in its future business. The increased visibility we have from almost $32 billion in RPO, a healthy backlog and pipeline, and improving supply give us the confidence to raise our full-year outlook. We expect those same factors to continue into fiscal year 24. All right, Robbins referencing forward-looking metrics, remaining performance obligation or RPO was up 4% year-over-year. 53% of that is current RPO, expected to be realized as revenue in the next year. Back to you, Melissa. All right, Frank, thanks. Frank Holland. Jeff Mills, where do you stand on Cisco? Yes, this is one we talked about on Friday, and I think generally you might expect a stock like Cisco to underperform during economic contractions. You know, I'm still of the view that that's somewhat likely as we push toward the back half of this year, but I went back and looked at the price chart, and it's actually outperformed during every recession since 1990, and that's before some of this transformation relative to its revenue mix. You have subscription revenue now at 43%. It's also growing a lot faster than overall revenue, so I think that transformation is really positive. It makes the business even more resilient during economic contractions. You know, I generally think that the valuation is pretty fair. It, it pays a decent dividend. So in terms of old, boring tech, I think you could own the stock here. <laughs> um, that chart in the after hours, interesting how it's coming off that pop. It's now up, uh, I don't want to say only 2.5% because that ain't bad, um, but it had been up as much as, what, 8 or 9% immediately after earnings, Tim. Yeah, and, and I think it, it had traded lower and it had not had the same bounce back as some big cap tech. But Jeff pointed out the multiple on the stock. It, I'd say it's more than decent value. I think it's great value. And I think it's great value, especially in a world where I expect a reversion back to the margin mean, which is probably 67, 68 percent. This is, this is a company, of course, 20 years ago, we were waiting on bated breath or 15 for sure. This was an economic bellwether. Yeah. It was cyclical one-on-one. Um, it, it's a little different, but I, I, I still think, again, their core business and they have a lot of software in there deserves a higher margin. That's what makes it attractive. That's what makes the multiple attractive because it's, it's a higher growth story than people think. And, and that's what makes it outperform. Everything that Tim just said and Jeff said, that's why it outperforms during an economic downturn. But when you listen to the CEO, it doesn't sound like he's waiting for an economic downturn. Those future orders sound pretty good. So I use that as an indication of where the economy's going versus where Cisco's going. All right, there's a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Crude intentions, oil prices losing energy today, and the sector taking a hit. So is last year's red-hot trade out of gas? And a Goldman game changer, the investment bank scrapping its credit card plans. So what does the strategy shift mean for the stock? The details ahead. 
You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to Fast Money, a down day for energy stocks with crude and nat gas extending losses for a second straight day. The sector is now basically flat for the year. Today's move lower, led by Devon Energy, plunging after reporting worse than expected results. A company warning that inflation is pushing the break-even threshold up by $10 a share. Um, Tim, what'd you make of Devon? Well, Devin missed a little bit on free cash flow, and ultimately their payout levels, I think, are really impressive. And I think if you're looking at a company with an 8% div yield that trades six times trailing, and maybe that was an environment they can't, so we should look at the forward numbers, which is around seven, seven and a half. Um, I think there's a lot there. I, I recognize that we've had a perfect storm on some level for oil prices, but have we? Because, uh, again, the China reopening and demand and some more resilience. And I, I just think um, ultimately expecting oil prices to be north of 100 bucks a barrel, as I say this all the time, is not why you're buying energy companies. You're buying them because, uh, again, in Marathon After the Bell here, you know, talking about north of 40 percent cash flow payouts to investors. Um, CapEx is inching higher. And, and the urge is to, to drill more, to put more capex to work. That's what we're all watching. So far, I, I haven't been that discouraged. Guy? Feels like, and I, 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 feels like to me this is Devin specific. Now, we'll see. I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly as well. For you folks at Devin, I'm sorry. But it feels as though some of the issues were specific to the company. I'll also say this, that the move in natural gas has not helped a lot of these downstream plays. But I'm with Tim 100% on this. You know, these stocks, ExxonMobil, a week or so ago, was making a new all-time high. So every time it's seemed to be the end of the energy stocks cycle, it's proven to be the time to get back in. I don't think you run from energy here in terms of the stocks. I think you add to long positions. I mean, it was a big drop for Devin, and it did seem a little Devin-specific when they were talking specifically about outages in terms of infrastructure in the yeah. Delaware Basin, um, you know, temporarily affecting volumes. I mean, that's... Devin specific, and that seems first quarter specific as well. Um, Jeff, I thought what was interesting, though, is the talk about how inflation is moving that break even higher. And that's not something that we often necessarily think about. I mean, I, I, I sort of wonder in the back of my mind if the Biden administration is listening to this, that his inflation is high. Or if it's it intended for the Biden more, administration. It costs, exactly. It yeah. costs more to make the stuff like any company. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and it's something you have to pay attention to. But at the same time, you know, are we past the worst of that? Obviously, inflation having peaked, uh, and I think it probably trends lower, we can argue as to the speed. But, you know, I agree with what the other guys have said. You know, you look at some of these valuations, you know, whether it's six, seven times, you can look at a, a Marathon Petroleum, you could look at a Marathon Oil Company, you know, even look at an ExxonMobil, for example. And even if earnings are flat to down, say, over the next couple of years, and I think that's, that's possible, to Tim's point, you know, we don't need oil prices to go to $80, $90 a barrel for these to be reasonable at these prices. So you know, for me, I think that's the key. And at the same time, you have companies 
companies like ExxonMobil, for example, continuing to manage costs even amid record profits. I think that's a good thing for the more medium-term outlook. Uh, and even if we do see break-even costs rising a little bit, you know, a shameless plug for the fame trade here, but that's why I like a company like EOG Resources. You know, they're generally a low-cost producer. They can support that dividend at much lower oil prices. So, you know, if you want to play in that direction because you are concerned uh, about the break-evens, maybe a stock like that makes sense. I think uh, 2022 was the year of the equity. I, I, don't, I think everything was front-loaded. If you look at ExxonMobil, Chevron to a larger extent, all of these charts have rolled over. I would stay out of the equity. I'm up in the air on the commodity. It could be the year for the commodity to rally mm -hmm. and a year for the equities to sell off. I think it was already pulled forward. All right, coming up, Goldman Sachs scraping, scrapping, I should say, its direct-to-consumer credit card plans, and the analysts are sounding off what the changes could mean for the stock next. Plus, interceptions and investing. Philadelphia Eagles player Indomitian Sue will join us in just a few minutes. How he invests in his career on and off the field. Don't go anywhere. More Fast Money right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get a check on how markets ended the day. Stocks closing near their session highs. The Nasdaq up for a third straight day, rising nearly a percent, helped by Airbnb's post-earning surge. The S&P and Dow also ending in the green. And Bitcoin surging back above 24,000 today, the 8% move, putting it at a two-week high. And it wasn't just Bitcoin. It was a lot of sort of the quote-unquote risk-on stocks, the quote-unquote growthier stocks, non-profitable tech stocks that rallied, Steve. I just I think it's a testament to how offsides this market has become. Everyone is bet against it. Every, it's always the most hated rally whenever you look at the market rallying back. And it seems like this is truly the most hated rally. And people are reaching for the risk, risk stocks, as you said before. And, and until people get right sized, I think the technicals in the marketplace, though, 4,200 is a huge number to the upside. So we'll play around with the same 100 handles in the S&P. But right now, people are way too negative and pessimistic. Right now, it's an uptrend that needs to be knocked down. It's not a downtrend um, that needs uh -huh. to be broken. And, and you know, 4,100 to 4,130, right around where we are, um, there's pretty good support. In fact, it probably goes all the way down to 4,000 on the S&P. But a VIX that's, you know, it's, you know, in an 18 handle. I mean, what we've been seeing, rates have been going higher over the last couple of days, and the VIX has been dropping. And it's a case where I just think you've got, um, you know, expectations for this market. I think on some level, it feel, you use the word risk, it feels de-risked by yes. the Fed. Um, and, and we don't have credit issues right now. We have earnings that are not great, um, but we haven't necessarily seen uh, this. You know, it almost makes you feel like we've got to wait one more earnings session, and we clearly do, to, to really start to, to, to mark companies where it feels they are. I mean, it's, it's strange to think that it's being de-risked by the Fed when that is the one Right. Financial Variable. conditions are Major. arguably looser now Variable. than where, where they were uh, nine months ago when rates were 3% lower. Yeah, our conference call today, Guy, you were talking about the VIX and how it just sort of didn't make sense. It doesn't make sense in terms of what it is tracking. There's volatility in all sorts of asset yeah. classes, but seemingly in equities, there is none. Yeah, the math behind it, well, people will submit that the math behind it in terms of the percentage move associated with a 20 VIX, let's say, we just haven't had it recently. So I guess to that end, the math makes sense. What doesn't make sense is effectively with all the things out there, with all the potential headwinds that we're facing, you know, VIX at levels we haven't seen in a couple of years, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. And I think a lot of talk about these one-day options that I cannot speak intelligently about, but a lot of people are pointing to them as a potential uh, reason for some of the things we're seeing. But the Bitcoin, and you mentioned it, the move in Bitcoin, to me, 
is saying that something something's sort of going to break along the way. That coupled with the fact that two's tens is now blown out, I think at one point today, 87 or so basis points. We've been saying on this show for months, if not longer, that that was probably going to go to negative 1%. And again, for the life of me, I don't understand how that's bullish in any scenario. All right, meantime, Goldman Sachs scrapping its plans for a direct-to-consumer credit card, the latest black eye for the banking giant. Top analyst Mike Mayo slamming the bank this morning on Squawk Box. Why were they allowed to lose billions of dollars in expanding the consumer business without someone stepping in and saying, enough? And this transcends the current CEO. David Solomon, the current CEO, leaned in, but at least he's cutting the losses now. So I want to know what broke down in the financial controls that allowed them to spend so much for so long. And then there's this. This is a headline from the New York Times earlier this month, suggesting CEO David Solomon's side hustle as a DJ may be a conflict of interest. You hmm. don't see these kinds of articles when a stock is doing well, when a company is doing well. So is there a crisis of confidence at the company and a crisis of confidence about its CEO? Jeff, what do you say? Yeah, there could be. I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens relative to, to leadership there. But to your point, when the stock's not doing great, it's, it's easy to start pointing fingers. You know, I just think, and we talked about this right after Goldman's earnings call, you know, they, they bit off a little bit more than they can chew. And this year is likely one of retrenchment. You're probably going to have balance sheet reduction, expense cutting, and scaling back some offerings. And I think that's what we're seeing in terms of the consumer business. So I think the stock is probably, at the very least, range bound for for quite a while. And that push into consumer was really a push toward looking for more durable sources of revenue. So they don't have it there. You know, it could potentially be in asset management. But if you look at the difference between, say, Goldman Sachs and and Morgan Stanley, uh, the difference is stark looking in the asset management business. Morgan Stanley, you know, $1.4 billion of earnings, 18% ROE. Goldman Sachs had a slight loss, negative ROE. So, you know, there's an issue there that they need to fix relative to sort of the durability of their revenue profile if that's where they want to go with this business. And for Morgan Stanley, it was a multi-year transformation that involved a few different acquisitions along the way, Guy. Big ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and they did that seamlessly, by the way. And they did it at the right time, too. They got themselves in the asset management and the RA, you know, the, the financial advisory business, a lot sooner than people probably thought, and at the right time, as it turns out. But in terms of Goldman Sachs, and since you mentioned, you know, where are we in terms of David Solomon, uh, this is a company since 1969, the, the gentleman there that was there for 40 years prior. Since then, they've had nine CEOs. So the average tenure is about five, five and a half years. Lloyd was sort of at the higher end. I think he sat there at 12. So with that said, you know, this year, next year, David's probably getting long in the tooth. And is there going to be a switcheroo in that seat? Probably yes, but that does not signify anything. It just signifies what Goldman's done. The last quarter was not good. They've admitted they've made some mistakes, but I think you stay long Goldman Sachs here. Let me ask a question. Mm. If the headline crossed, David Solomon is, I don't know why. I, I, can, I can talk whatever Okay, about. sorry. Okay. You keep doing it. Um, <laughs> you do it well. David, if, if the headline crossed, the David Solomon was stepping down, leaving his post. Rallies. Would the stock go up? Uh, I think he's an easy target right now. I, I, to answer your question, Yes. 
Uh, however, um, I think people need to relax. And, and they've got an investor day in a couple of days. They're going to they're going to reiterate a target of 15 to 17 percent on returns of, of tangible equity. Uh, their fourth quarter wasn't great. Uh, if you look at this, and again, relative to the money center banks, it's apples and oranges. But but if you look at a five-year chart on Goldman versus all the other big money center banks, you're doing fine. And, and Goldman, this hasn't necessarily been an environment where Goldman makes their money. They will be back. At, you know, I would be buying weakness. And remember what Mike Mayo also said. This is the most recession-proof banks have have been, financials have been. So this is clouding it, making this uh, focus on Goldman Sachs. The best chart in the space is Morgan Stanley. So I wish I had a must trade versus a just trade right now, but I'm still long JP Morgan. All right, coming up, fresh off his Super Bowl appearance, Indomitian Sue from the Philadelphia Eagles will join the desk, how he tackles investing while balancing a football career. That is next. And during February, we are celebrating Black Heritage. Here's the CEO of Vista Equity Partners. Today, one of the primary barriers to access and opportunity in African-American communities is internet connectivity. Reliable, affordable, and fast internet access is something many of us take for granted. However, approximately 40% of black households don't have access to high-speed fixed broadband internet, and approximately 80% of our HBCUs exist in broadband deserts. As the pandemic has shown, the internet is no longer an accessory, it's a necessity. If we can provide access to digital infrastructure, we can create more on-ramps to opportunity and build towards a more equitable future. Welcome back from football to finances. Our next guest is tackling it all. Fresh off his Super Bowl appearance, Indomitian Sue of the, of the Philadelphia Eagles is no stranger to defense on the field, but it's a financial defense off the field that brings him here to Fast Money. The Sue Family Foundation recently partnering with Intuit to launch a financial literacy program for high school students around the country. Indomitian joins us now. Indomitian, great to have you with us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me as always. First of all, of course, our condolences on your on your loss in the Super Bowl, <laughs> but it was still a feat to make it there in and of itself. Tell me about this financial literacy push in Dominican. I'm I'm thinking for, you know, at least from my perspective, I didn't I grew up in a, in a very nice community with a very good public school and I didn't get financial literacy either. So I'm sure that that is lacking across the country in spades. Yeah, well, first and foremost, thank you. Uh, last Monday was not fun, uh, especially the way it ended. Uh, but more importantly, uh, and something that I've always focused on since I was a kid, really not knowing it, uh, and my mom and my dad teaching me great lessons uh, was financial literacy. And my wife and I joined together to, to build uh, not only our family foundation, but finding ways to empower other kids, uh, in our youth and our communities that we're a part of, and, and, and really across the country, which uh, we've been able to do with a great partner in Intuit um, and be able to create financial literacy. I didn't have the opportunity to learn it in school. My, I just learned the lessons from my mom being a teacher uh, and then my dad being an engineer. He, he taught me uh, different lessons as I, I grew up and wanting different things and knowing I had to work for it and how to budget and manage all these particular pieces. So uh, it's something that I, I pride myself on, and, and it's something that our youth is going to be a part of their lives no matter what they want to do and what they want to accomplish in life. And financial literacy is going to be a big component in their life. Anybody who follows your Twitter, Anamikin, knows that you are plugged in. <laughs> you follow the markets. <laughs> you're you're involved, um, truly. And, and so I'm wondering, what, what about investing do you like? What kind of investing do you like the most? Do you like stock trading? Do you like, you're, you're in all sorts of different things at this point. 
Yeah, I'm in a tremendous amount of things. My biggest focus uh, has always been real estate. Um, so focus pretty heavily on that, just having a development company, working with my partners uh, and just different banks and different folks that we have to develop these different assets that we, we want to create, not only from uh, the market uh, of multifamily uh, market rate, but also looking at the opportunity to help with affordable housing, uh, which is something that should be afforded to everybody in this particular world. Uh, when it comes to like what I really, really enjoy to answer your question directly, uh, I love being able to work with Andreessen Horowitz or the General Atlantics of the world, being able to see all these cool in innovative deals that come across their table and, and have these different particular relationships with them and then uh, be able to dive into special companies like Ember Technology uh, or be able to work with a great mentor of mine and Jay Brown at MVP, uh, Marcy Venture Partner. So just being able to have those strong relationships and I learned early on in my life that relationships are everything in this world and uh, being able to connect people and be able to work with them to, to better off not only their companies but them as, as people as well. Big Sue, number 93, retired at Nebraska. You were there for four years. Important part of your life. You also got a chance to meet Warren Buffett during that time and you've developed quite a relationship. Speak to how important what you've learned from him over the years. Uh, Mr. Buffett is great. Um, he's one of my biggest mentors. We got to know each other as soon as I left school. But really met him when I was at school, but built a relationship as I was leaving. <clears throat> but probably my biggest relationship with him uh, is just learning how to be patient, uh, understanding, always be prepared, be focused on the things that you encounter uh, and that you want to have, you want to have that particular drive for, and uh, really just work with good people. Uh, if you if you notice in this conglomerate that he has. It's all about amazing people that not only work within his, in his holding company office, but then also all the different people that run his companies. They're all great people. And Dominican, last quick question. We've been showing a picture of you and Warren Buffett arm wrestling. Who won? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mr. Buffett won. Uh, and we've, we've wrestled a couple of times. We've done it for some charity events and whatnot, but uh, I, I try not to, to take it out on him. Uh, I usually just keep that to the football field. We hope you'll uh, come back to Fast Money again soon. Great to speak with you. Thank no, you. I, I definitely look forward to it. Hopefully we can get in person sometime soon. Come on in studio and Dominican. You're always welcome. Thanks. Thank you. And Dominican Sue, what a great cause, right? Financial literacy, so important. What a true leader, uh, both on the field and off yeah. the field. And, and I'm betting in the locker room amongst his peers. And again, financial literacy among professional athletes is something that, that really has come a long way. It's fantastic. Yeah. Jeff? As an Eagles fan, I Ooh. call on you because I think you, you could relate to uh, what Indomitian is saying on many levels. <laughs> no doubt about it. And obviously the Super Bowl was disappointing, but uh, what a season. Obviously talk about my daughter, what a big Eagles fan she is. And we had such a blast at the games, lifelong memories. So thank you to him. Thank you to the entire team. But in terms of what he's doing, I mean, it's absolutely critical. I think for one reason, you don't get it in school. You know, even the quote unquote better schools, oftentimes financial literacy is not a focus. And I think now with the technology available, you know, even opening a Robinhood account for one of your kids and putting $50 in there and talking to them about the companies they know and understand and maybe where they want to put some money. I just think it's a great way to teach that next generation. Uh, and the technology now to enable that is fantastic. If you're not in the business, you have to find a mentor. If you are in the business, you should be a mentor. We've been doing a stock market game, brought fifth graders down to the floor of the exchange, 35 fifth graders, follow up when they're in eighth grade, follow up when they're seniors, and they would never know where Wall Street was 
because they didn't have a parent that worked on the street. So it's incumbent upon all of us to bring those people into the circle. I didn't have a father that worked on Wall Street. I found it on my own. Coming up, we've got more earnings movers for you. Shares of Shopify plunging on the back of its report. We've got the details next. Plus, gaming gains. Shares of Roblox surging on the back of earnings this morning. And options traders are betting this stock keeps leveling up how they are playing the name when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Shopify, the stock plunging after delivering light guidance for the current quarter. The conference call underway. Let's get to Kate Rooney with the latest. Kate. Hey, Melissa. So the weak guidance really is the issue here for Shopify. It's 2023 revenue outlook falling short of expectations for the full year. Shopify is forecasting high teens revenue growth analyst. Excuse me. We're looking for more than 20 percent revenue growth. It's also looking like Q1 revenue guide was also light. This is despite a surprise adjusted profit on EPS revenue for the fourth quarter. Also a beat, but shares are near the low of the extended hour session here Uh, down almost 10% at this point. Melissa, back to you. Kate, thanks. Kate Rooney. Jeff Mills, how do you trade this? Yeah, my worry heading into the print was that expectations were a little bit too optimistic for 2023. I think you're you're seeing that right size now. I mean, whether it's potential headwinds with the consumer or obviously small businesses really important to to Shopify, recessions tend to hit them harder. So, you know, it's my concern that this continues for the rest of the year. The price has been adjusted here a bit, and I do think it's a good long-term story. Clearly an important player in e-commerce going forward, but I think you can set the stock aside for the near term. All right, let's move on to Roblox. The stock surging here, a whopping 26% after a big earnings beat before the bell. It's now up 58% on the year, more than double its June lows. Options traders are betting the bullish print means more gains ahead. Kelly Intelligence CEO Kevin Kelly joins us with the action. Kevin, what are you looking at? Hi, Melissa. Well, yeah, coming into today, it was a 12.5% expected move, and you saw it go up over 26%. But what was interesting is that volatility didn't really compress today, even after earnings. But what we did see is a big trade today where it was a calendar risk reversal, where a trader went out there and they actually sold uh, the March $28 puts for about 13 cents, collected that premium, and then went out and spent five dollars and 20 cents to go all the way out to the june expiration on the 50 dollar calls so you're going to need the stock to move up over 22 percent to break even on those calls all right kevin thanks kevin kelly for more options action tune into the full show that is friday 5 30 p.m eastern time up next final trades final trade time guy adami i think dollar gen soft is too much Mel dg Jeff Mills. Guy and I are going discount retailer. The F in fame, five below. The chart's up and to the right. I think that continues. Steve Grasso. Sell-off was overdone in Alphabet. Rounding bottom by. Tim Seymour. Long me some Cisco. Stay there. All right. Thanks for watching Fast. CNBC special taking stock with Brian Sullivan. Starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX. Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, The ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind. 
just like Hacker has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.